Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Today's discussion will focus on genetics and maternal concerns before and during pregnancy. Joining us today is Dr. Owen Phillips. Dr. Phillips is an obstetrician gynecologist and reproductive geneticist at Regional One Health in Memphis, Tennessee. She is also a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. She has multiple publications and comes with a wealth of knowledge to our show today. Welcome, Dr. Phillips. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are so happy to have you here today. We're going to go ahead and get started because I know this topic of genetics in the world of obstetrics is a big one, and we want to make sure we pick your brain for all the great information. But first, let's start with just sharing a little bit more about yourself, your career, and what really sparked your interest in the field of genetics. Well, that's a great question. I think about my trajectory all the time as I am been in the field of genetics for 20, 30 years now. Following residency, I actually went into private practice and uh, realized that I wanted a more academic career and therefore started looking for fellowship opportunities. And kind of new to the field of OBGYN was the field of genetics. Prenatal diagnosis was getting a lot of attention, a lot of genetics discoveries and new findings were on the horizon. And when I discovered that was a possibility, interviewed for fellowships, and then took the fellowship that seemed to be right for me here at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. Plenty of opportunities to join other practices and departments uh, across the nation, but decided to stay in Memphis for many reasons, some personal, but really just that that was a good fit for who I was and where I saw myself. We are happy that you made that choice and you're still here in Tennessee. Can you talk a little bit more about your research in the field and the work that you've contributed to the field of genetics in the obstetric world? So the field over, again, the past decades has changed so much. And I was really just so fortunate to be on the ground floor of many of the research findings and discoveries that have impacted us all as patients as well as practitioners. Chorionic villa sampling as an alternative to amniocentesis was just being investigated. We had the original NIH grants to determine the safety of amniocentesis and CVS very early in my career here. And so many of the publications that I participated in or actually wrote and 
developed the research projects were around chorionic villus sampling and amniocentesis uh, for the indication of chromosome abnormality, testing, or testing pregnancies for single gene defects. I also was part of the team that looked at newer forms of screening for chromosome abnormalities, and this included in the day the quad screen and uh, more recently cell-free DNA. And then finally, many discoveries were being made as it pertained to single gene defects. And some of my earlier publications had to do with cystic fibrosis in the African-American population and uh, discovered novel mutations that accounted for cystic fibrosis disease in individuals who were Black. So that's just in a nutshell, the things I've accomplished. Wow, what a career in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. And what an amazing journey. And just to hear it from the mouth of an obstetrician gynecologist, because, you know, these days we kind of silo genetics into certain specialists or a specialty of its own. But just to be able to marry the two, that's a very unique, unique place to be as an obstetrician. Yeah, I, I do feel like I can make a contribution not, to an, not only to an individual patient who comes to see me with concerns, but also be an educator of the community. Genetics is evolving so fast, and there are so many changes. And if you try to keep up with the literature, it's practically impossible. It's impossible for me. But I do have the capacities to kind of sort out what is sort of needed in the community as far as education and as far as patient care. So it's a big field, but when it pertains to the obstetrician gynecologist, keeping it simple as possible is the right answer to that question. Absolutely. Well, you've mentioned two testing modalities that we see. One, the the screening test for genetic anomalies. Second, the diagnostic testing. And we know that our governing bodies have put out statements about recommendations for both of those with any pregnant person. Can you speak more to the ability to use that, to the relevance of it, speaking more to the use of it in pregnancy? Screening for a prenatal disease or genetic disease is not unlike screening, say, for gestational diabetes during a pregnancy. Your goal is to take a low-risk population and apply some test to that low-risk population, and then from there identify a high-risk population for which additional management would be in order, either high-resolution ultrasound or offering amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. So again, in the field of discerning chromosome abnormalities, such as Down syndrome, the plan would be for cell-free DNA, which is, of course, the more recent development for screening. And it's a blood test. And the blood test should come back either high risk or low risk. And the individual, the patient, should understand what that would mean from her doctor's office. And then if a referral is indicated to either a maternal fetal medicine specialist, a genetic counselor, or if in your community you have an OBGYN with interest in genetics, then that individual would take it from there and offer testing, offer additional methods for ascertainment. 
great. It sounds like a very vital tool that we can all use. And I know just in your conversation so far, you mentioned several options as far as screening. What is would be the best approach for a provider who's deciding what type of screening to offer to use in screening for a patient? You know, we wish the answer to that question would be what's best for the patient in the sense that what is going to have the highest detection rate and the lowest false positive rate for those particular tests. But we are driven also by what insurance will pay for. Even though ACOG has clearly stated that cell-free DNA screening for chromosome abnormalities is superior to, say, serum analyte screening, which is the quad screen or the triple screen, Oftentimes, insurance companies won't pay for it in a low-risk situation. So it's that that we have to consider as well. But again, the patients know about cell-free DNA. Oftentimes, they know about it because that's the test that they can get early in pregnancy and tell whether or not it's a boy or a girl. But it's the reminder that the doctor should be in charge of what test to offer and to make sure that it is really the right one for the patient. These tests are developed to pick up chromosome abnormalities. And you might find that your patient's not really interested in that. And I see it all the time where a woman will come to my office just quite devastated. She really wanted to know if the baby was a boy or a girl. And what she's dealing with now is that the fetus actually may have trisomy 21 or trisomy 18. And she is really surprised by that piece of information and was not aware that it was going to be put on her plate that she would be dealing with that. And that makes perfect sense. When we compare, you mentioned cell-free DNA versus the other serum analyte type of screening. Are there any benefits of one modality versus the other when we're talking about testing of any sort? Well, yes. For cell-free DNA, the detection rate is quite high. For Down syndrome, for instance, it's greater than 99% accurate in detecting Down syndrome. The false positive rate is also very low. And anybody who's dealt with quad screens before for their patients will know that about 5% of them will be positive and likely a false positive. Uh, meaning that the fetus is perfectly normal, and yet the test comes back positive. And so the cell-free DNA technology takes a lot of that anxiety and a lot of that guesswork out of the process of offering screening to patients. Um, the other good news about using cell-free DNA is that you don't have to be precise about the gestational age. Practitioners, again, will remember that they need ultrasound defining the gestational age and pretty precisely, too, for the test to be its most efficacious. And so that takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. You just have to draw the test after 10 weeks in general and can be drawn throughout pregnancy and give as accurate a result otherwise. Thank you for sharing that. That that makes perfect sense. So when a patient does get approached with the discussion of genetic screening and the decision to decide to do a test and then which test would be best for them. What's your advice to the patients who are making these decisions? 
Well, it's something that just has to be understood and should be understood by the practitioner as well as the patient, that these tests are not 100% accurate. The companies that make them have said very clearly that the detection rate is so high that you can practically take this result uh, to the bank. But the truth is, as long as there is some false positives in the calculation, and there are always false positives when it comes to this type of testing, it's possible that the cell-free DNA screen can be wrong. And the chance that it's wrong depends on the patient's age. It is much more likely to be a positive, a true positive test, the older the patient gets. And so oftentimes a young woman, 20 or 21 years of age, comes in. She is distraught over the fact that the the test might have shown that the fetus had a chromosome abnormality and that we can sit down with a calculator or a calculation. There are many that you can find online. Uh, I use the perinatal quality NIPT test calculator and define then that the patient's risk actually is more like 70 or 80 percent as opposed to, quote, 100 percent accurate. And so that's one thing that just has to be defined up front as far as what's the actual chance that this pregnancy is affected with a chromosome abnormality. And then ultrasound can give us a great deal of information as well. It's not 100% accurate, obviously, either, but if we're looking at some chromosome abnormalities, such as trisomy 18 or trisomy 13, there should be ultrasound anomalies associated with those, particularly growth restriction or cardiac malformation. So an ultrasound would be a good next step. And then the counseling has to do with defining what the patient may actually want. Are they interested in knowing for sure? And you might be surprised. Sometimes you might take a guess that here's a couple who is going to want definitive information, and yet they're okay with not having testing and with proceeding with the pregnancy, not knowing whether or not there may be a chromosome abnormality. And then there are others who just want to know. And at that point, we discuss the risks and benefits of prenatal testing and give patients those options, allow them to go home, think about it if they choose to, and then proceed with testing if and when they're ready. Great. Now, we've talked more about a little bit in, in the, earlier in the conversation about diagnostic testing. Can you speak to what diagnostic testing is versus prenatal screening? How do those differ? So again, testing would be amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. It is considered an invasive procedure, usually by way of a needle, to get a fetal sample, whether or not that's placenta or fluid. And then that sample is sent to a laboratory whose skill set is to analyze those cells and tell definitively that the fetus is either affected with that chromosome abnormality or not. And when we talk about invasive testing, we have to make it clear that there are risks associated with that. They're very rare. We've overestimated the risk for a long time. But recent studies have found that the risk of having 
a miscarriage, say, following an amniocentesis is on the order of one in a thousand. And that when compared to that, CVS is equally as safe as long as the individual who's performing the CVS is experienced in that testing. And so it is the final step, essentially, in the odyssey and should be considered definitive. So if the test result comes back normal, end of story. If it comes back showing a chromosome abnormality, then that's indeed what the pregnancy has. Well, that definitely makes sense between the two. I wanted us to spend a few minutes talking about test results. If a patient's screening test is positive, and I know you've mentioned this as well, what should be the approach from the provider? How should the patient approach that result? And what would it mean as far as next steps, especially with the prenatal screening results and what that next step may be for the patient and the provider? I see a number of patients who have had experiences in their doctor's office that really didn't go as well as they might have wanted to in dealing with this type of sensitive and anxiety-causing information. So I would encourage practitioners to become familiar with the test they're ordering and what it really means if it were to come back positive, and to make a telephone call if that's the way the patient wants to receive the information, and explain it to the patient themselves. Oftentimes, I'll understand from the patients that a nurse is called. And the response is, well, what does that mean that my test is positive for something? And the nurse will say, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I think the doctor just wants you to see a specialist and we're going to arrange that. Again, that is just not ideal. The other thing is that we tend to add some value to the results as we are conveying them. And I encourage people not to do that. And to say, instead of, I've got bad news, it looks like your baby may have Down syndrome, or this is not good news I'm about to give you, but there's a chromosome abnormality risk associated with this test. Instead, just say, I have your results, and the results are positive, and let me explain to you what that means. Pause a minute to let that sort of sink in for the patient to have a chance to sit down or Uh, say she'd rather call you back. She needs a minute to gather herself and find a place where she can talk. And then be just, again, without value added one way or the other, just say the test is positive, indicates the pregnancy is at high risk for chromosome aneuploidy, however you've defined it for her, Down syndrome. And this isn't 100%. We need to perhaps take next steps. And my plan is to refer you to a specialist. The opportunity to go over this kind of information with the patient and OBGYNs care so much about their patients, they just can't help putting themselves in their shoes and, you know, wanting to say the right thing. They care and feel like they have personal relationships with patients and may say one thing or the other that just maybe left better unsaid. Absolutely. You touched on the actual diagnostic testing procedure before, but is there anything else patients would need to know if they're being recommended to undergo diagnostic testing or if they're actually scheduled to have that performed? 
Well, that's a great way to put it because this gives me another opportunity to remind people that testing or even screening is not recommended. It is actually offered to patients. Enough information ought to be provided about testing or screening that allows the patient to make the decision about what's right for them. And I would think that the referring physician should just leave it open and say, listen, I rely on Dr. So-and-so when a screen is positive to go over the details with you and to explain the science behind it. That individual may know more than me or does know more than me. And that my expectation is there's going to be a lot of conversation. And that's what I would call counseling and probably another ultrasound. and then discussion about next steps and that you ought to go in relaxed and expect somebody to fully explain everything to you and give you options. Thank you for clarifying that because, you know, in the world of medicine, we're always taught to recommend we don't give options. But in this case, given the topic and the nature of it, giving options makes perfect sense. Yes. And so it is, it's something as educators that we do have to talk to our learners about, our residents about. They can recommend cancer treatment. They can recommend that a patient have a C-section for a particular issue. But when it comes to genetic testing, one of the founding principles is that having genetic testing is a personal and private decision uh, that is made with the patient and the physician, but the patient getting enough information to make those decisions for themselves. Well, in the same vein of prenatal screening and testing, maternal age is one of the most common reasons for genetic screening. And the reason some testing options were created, as you mentioned earlier, Can you speak to maternal age as a factor, especially given more and more people are delaying childbearing to what we would consider the advanced maternal age period in life? I tell patients that other than the concern over chromosome abnormalities, again, Down syndrome or an extra 18 or 13, that there are no other increased risks associated with birth defects. And so if they were, if a patient is interested in ruling in or ruling out a chromosome abnormality, then screening or testing is available for them. And uh, they can use that to get that, that information. If a chromosome abnormality out, increased risk, or say having another a child with autism or developmental delay for other reasons. And so that should be comforting. As you said, more and more women are delaying childbearing, so this is becoming more and more important. It does influence the testing, as I said earlier. The detection rate is the same, whether or not of the screens or the diagnostic tests, whether or not a woman is 20 or whether or not she's 40, but because she's more likely to have a pregnancy associated with the chromosome abnormality the older she gets, then the chance that that test is truly positive and reflects the fetus when it is reported as positive is an important step. It should be very reassuring that the false negative rate, that is that the test might miss something, 
would then be quite low, the older a woman gets too. So these are a bit of the heavier statistics, but they need to be understood to be able to inform the patient of what is available. And ACOG, our guiding source for committee opinions and issues concerning what standard of care, uh, reminds us that we've really come to a point where prenatal diagnosis is so safe, again, with the possibility of a loss rate of one in a thousand, and that screening is so accurate in its detection rate that there really shouldn't be any line drawn any longer for advanced maternal age. The 30-year-old who is just anxious about this and wants to have a chorionic villus sampling earlier in her pregnancy and know for sure, is welcome to have it. The 40-year-old who says, I do not want testing, but I will consent to screening or perhaps nothing, that's okay too. So there is no line drawn really any longer for, quote, advanced maternal age. Younger women can have testing, older women can have screening, and uh, we should just understand the way to present those options to all patients. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Phillips. And I know we're nearing our time here, but we can't let you go that fast. So I am so happy you're going to join us for part two so we can continue the discussion of genetics and obstetrics. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Please look out for part two of our discussion with Dr. Phillips and our other maternal fetal experts across the state. Join us again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.